Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Romans chapter 3, if you will uh, stand with me when you found that, please, in the honor of the reading of God's Word, stand with me for Romans chapter 3. very first verse, Romans chapter 3, says this, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them who, uh, to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, Let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man, certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, they are all under sin. Father, this morning I lean heavily upon your hand, for even today you have just spoken to my heart. And Father, I ask now that you make yourself known. Make yourself known through your word. Hide me, Father, that I be nothing, and that you be very great today. This we pray in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's not very often I do this. Most time when God changes what I'm going to do, he's gracious enough to do it before I step to the pulpit. This morning he has changed his mind. I will always preach that which God lays upon my heart, even if my knees are knocking and I'm scared to death. And this morning that is the case. Yet I can't help but think. As that song was sung, how many of us really understand what Christ did for our sins? How many of us really understand who we are without Christ? And I think Paul, as he he writes the book of Romans, lays out a, a beautiful case of who we would be without. Who we are if we try to do it ourselves, but who we can be if Jesus Christ becomes the Lord of our life. And if there's something we need to remember, church, is this. Jesus loved us through the death of his only begotten son. You see, when we chose sin, Jesus chose a cross. When we chose to turn our back on God, Jesus chose to stretch his hands out and take the nails for our sin. When we chose what we thought were the joys of life because it made us feel good, Jesus Christ chose to be spit upon, beaten, to be ridiculed, to die on our behalf. Sometimes I think we forget. Some of us may not have ever realized what Jesus Christ has done for us. I pray this morning, if you're in this place and you don't have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you will not leave until you hear the call. 
that you will not step from these doors back into a life thinking that what you've done this morning by coming satisfied God because it did not. Your presence here does not satisfy God. The only thing that satisfied God is death. Death because of sin. Death. But your death wouldn't satisfy it because your death would mean you would spend all of eternity in hell. Therefore, there must be something, someone to die in our place. You remember the Old Testament. If you've been reading through the Bible with us this year, and I pray that you have, you've read through the ups and downs of this chosen people called Israel. The most amazing thing I saw through all the book of Kings, even as I rolled over into Chronicles and explained it to us, and I had many people come and talk to me about it. I said, Pastor, I never realized how the roller coaster worked back then. It had to be the longest, greatest, highest, most dropping roller coaster in all the world. And what I mean is this. God chose a people. God chose a people that decided that the way God chose them, they needed to add to by adding these laws. Remember, he, he gave to them the Ten Commandments. Understand, just as Paul was saying here in other places in the book of Romans, the Ten Commandments were never, ever, ever given to us to save us. Never. They were given to you to prove to you that you could not be saved on your own. See, the Ten Commandments were given to you to prove to you that you're a sinner. Because there's not a one of us in this room that if we're honest with ourselves would raise your hand if I said, how many of you have kept the Ten Commandments? Even if I said, how many of you have kept five of the ten? I believe, if you're honest with yourself, if I said, how many of you have at least kept one of the ten, there would be no hands to go up. See, the Ten Commandments were never given as a way for you to get to heaven. The Ten Commandments were given to you to prove to you that you cannot do it. Impossible. Just the very one that comes to my mind as we're coming off of Father's Day, honor your mother and father. How many of you have always honored your mother and father and everything that you've done? Yet, you know, that is the commandment, as I told the kids on Father's Day, I believe it was, or Mother's Day, or maybe both. And that's the commandment that he says that if you'll do this, you'll have extended life. He even gives you a promise with that one. And we won't even bother to keep it. What makes us think that we will put God first in our life if we have that choice on our own? We can't. And we won't. All of us have proven that. And what, what Paul says here is he's, he's right and he starts off and says, what, what advantage then has the Jew? What's he saying? The Jews said, not only are we going to keep the Ten Commandments, so to make sure we're going to keep the Ten Commandments, we're going to add on top of that a bunch of other things that if we keep these smaller ones, to be sure we've got the Ten covered. Hundreds of little laws. Just got back from Israel a few months ago. Still saw those laws in place. I believe I told you if you were here for that night that I did the presentation, I actually got the witness what they called a bruise and a battered Pharisee. It was a Pharisee. It was a Jewish guy who came through a crowd that had women in it. And I noticed as two of them came through that they were stumbling as if blind. And a guy grabbed them by the coat and walked them through the crowd. And I asked the guy that was about to lead us underground to look at the western wall, that the part underground that they've done. Well, actually, he saw me looking at them. And there must have been this look of something on my face that caused him to go, come here. And I walked over to him and he said, you're trying to figure that out or whatever, aren't you? And I what, what was that? Because there's all these people and they're basically about to fall down trying to get through. He said, those are those guys who so try to keep the law 
that they would rather close their eyes, trip and fall walking through a crowd than to accidentally look at a woman in the wrong way. Now, is that what the Ten Commandments says? Does the Ten Commandments say that I have to stand up here and preach today with my eyes closed because this room's full of beautiful women? No, it says I'm to look at you and understand that you're beautiful because God made you. I am not to lust after you. That is different than looking upon you with my eyes. But the Jews, the Jews said in order to get to God, we've got to do that which God has said. So we'll set all these other things in place to make sure that if we keep these things, those Ten Commandments are taken care of. And I find it interesting that Paul starts this section with that when he says, even talking about their circumcision. You remember how the Jews looked at the Gentiles? They called them the uncircumcised. As if being circumcised made a difference to God. See, circumcision was given as a sign, yes, for the Jews. But was it ever given as a sign to the Gentiles? No. So therefore, it must not apply to the Gentiles, because the way I read the Bible, and especially when the guy who wrote this came along, he said he came that the Gentiles may hear the gospel. Never within the institutions of the church as it set forth was it ever made that you must be circumcised to be a Christian. If it was, guess what would happen, guys? You'd walk the aisle, you'd shake the pastor's hand, the pastor said, there's two things you got to do now. Number one, we got to get you circumcised. Number two, we got to get you baptized. You think it's hard to share the gospel now? <laughs> uh, take a 50-year-old guy who has never been circumcised, doesn't know Jesus, and you say one of the stipulations and you actually being saved, you got to be circumcised first. How's that going to work out for us? Not real good. It's, it's see, oh, kind of makes a joke of it, in all honesty. The section where I left off reading there in verse 9, he said, and we are we better than they? And he says, not at all. Who's the we he's referring to? Remember who he was. Remember who he was a part of. I think he actually made the statement as, as far as Pharisees, as far as religious leaders, as far as those who know the law, I was the man. He stood up and said, you want to know somebody who knew the law and kept the law? You want to know somebody who, who could spout it out if you woke him up from a dead sleep? I was the man. I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. So when he's saying the we, he said, look guys, I'm one of you. I believed in the law. I put my trust and my faith in the law. You say, pastor, we don't really put our faith and trust in the law any longer. I beg to differ with you. I beg to differ with you. How do I know that? If you would be so bold, if I asked this morning to say, how many of you have shared the gospel with someone in the last month and told them about what Jesus Christ has did in your life? How many of you have sat down one-on-one with a person, not lived out a Christian life around them thinking they will be saved? Because listen to me, you're not that good of a Christian. Your life is not going to save a person. It may lead them to hear the gospel, but the way you live is not going to save a person. How do I know that? Because the Word tells us. Where does faith come from? Hearing. And what does it come from hearing? The Word of God. Therefore, if you think the living of your life in the presence of sinners is going to cause them to wind up in heaven, 
you're making the Bible out of lie. No, what it says is that the living of your life in the presence of sinners should so draw them to the light that you can open your mouth and share the word of God with them and they may have faith in what you tell them about Jesus Christ and then come to know him as their Lord and Savior. So therefore, if I were to ask and go around the room, how many of you have sat down one-on-one with a person and told them about what Jesus has done in your life in the last month? How many would stand up and testify? If I were to say the last year, the last five, the last ten, some of you have been saved a long time. Let's just put it out there at 40 or 50. I still wouldn't get every person in this room standing. You know why? Because you don't believe what Jesus did for you. Because if you believed what Jesus did for you, you couldn't keep your mouth shut. If you understood where you were headed before Jesus showed up, you couldn't keep your mouth shut. You wouldn't be scared of the ridicule. You wouldn't be scared of people no longer wanting to hang out with you. You wouldn't be scared of people laughing at you. What you would be scared of is that they were going to go to a place called hell that you knew that was a place of gnashing of teeth, that was continual torment, that there was never any relief from it at all. You see the picture in the Bible where the man goes to hell and says, please just let one drop of water be given to me. And when they says, no, that's not going to happen. He says, then at least do this. Send someone from the dead back to talk to my five brothers because I'm here and I don't want them to come. Why did he not tell them when he was still alive? Because he didn't believe what Jesus could do. It's too late when you're dead to tell those who are left what it's going to be like in a place called hell. Church, we need to wake up. We need to wake up and realize, apart from what Jesus Christ did on a cross for our sins, our destiny was a place called hell. It's not a party. You're not hanging out with your friends. You're not going to get together and go to the lake and enjoy a boat ride. It's eternal separation from anybody and everything, and especially from the Almighty God. That's what makes it hell. Do you want the person sitting in the pew next to you to experience that? then why haven't you told them about Jesus? Don't expect because they grace those doors every Sunday morning that their destiny is a place called heaven. I've made that mistake and I'm going to correct it. There's going to be some of you that are going to be asked some hard questions by your pastor. And it's not because I'm your pastor. It's not because I want to judge you. It's because I love you and I don't want you to go to a place called hell. Do you know that that wife, that child, that brother, that sister, the person sitting in the pew next to you is going to be in heaven forever? Do you know? If you don't know, I'll tell you why. Because you haven't asked. I can't lay my head on my pillow at night thinking that one of you may go to hell because I'm too scared to ask you if you know my Jesus. You see, when we think about a place called hell, we think about the fact that what we're counting on is our attendance, our Bible reading, Our love, our giving, all those outward things. When we depend on those things to show how much we love God, we're no different than the Pharisee. No difference. Why? Because, yes, we're required to give. I believe God demands it because he demands obedience. That's how his gospel is shared. I believe he demands that we love others. He tells us plainly, love God with all of your heart and your neighbor as yourself. He demands that. He demands that we follow Christ in His example. Absolutely. But do you know He also demands 
that you go to the othermost end of the world with the gospel? Just as much as he demands you place your offering in the plate because of what he's done for you, he demands that you share the gospel with your husband, your wife, your child, your neighbor. If we're not doing that, church, we're in sin. This church, Church Universal, will never be effective in the world until it really wraps its head around what God's asked us to do. God has not asked us to gather together together on Sunday and sing hymns. He's not asked us to gather together and love on each other and have fellowships and all that. that. That's not your purpose solely. Yes, those things come out of your purpose. Your purpose, the reason you're still here, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, is because the world around you is dying and going to a place called hell, and you are to tell them how they can avoid it. Church, if we're not doing that, we're in sin and we should not even fall on our face and ask God to bless us individually or as a church if we're not willing to do that, which he's asked us to do. Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day that you might have eternal life and he returned to earth after that, that he may be seen. And the last thing that he told those who had gathered there was what? Some of you don't even know. Flip to the last page of one of your Gospels and you're going to read where it says, Go tell the world what I have done. Go tell the world. And what has he done? Very quickly. If you want to know how to share the Gospel, I'm going to give it to you in four and a half minutes this morning. In Romans 3 where we had left off. There's a very critical verse that needs that you need to know, that you need to lock into your heart, that you need to share every time you share the gospel. It's Romans 3.23. And it says this, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Who are the all? I'm there. <laughs> Maybe you're not. Maybe you're better than me. But when it said all, it could have said, For Roger has sinned and come short of the glory of God. It could have said Kay. It could have said Carrie. It could have said anybody's name there because all covers us all. Yes, Billy Graham has sinned. Billy Graham. <laughs> yes, Billy Graham has sinned. You know, there's only one human being that has never sinned. It's a man called Jesus. Why is Jesus critical to the gospel? We had a discussion on Wednesday night about a penal substitutionary atonement. For you who don't know, sorry, we're not going to go back over it again. But it just says this, that there was a penalty to pay because of our sin and there needed to be a substitute because we weren't capable of paying for that sin because we had done it. And we needed someone to stand in the gap for us to atone with God, to make things right with God because of our sin. Because we did it. You can't say... That's the way I was taught. That's the way I grew up. You stand at the gates of heaven and you tell Jesus, you say, you know what? I want to come in because my mom and dad never taught me different. You know what the Bible also says? Within the heart of every man is the understanding that there is a God and there are moral values. Those moral values teach you that when you break those moral values, you have done something against somebody that's not right. There's not a person, whether it's a pygmy in the middle of uh, Uganda, if there are pygmies in Uganda, or whether there's a person on a mountaintop that's never met another human being that doesn't know there is right and wrong. Built within us is the innate sense that there is a right and a wrong. And when we do wrong, we know something is wrong. So don't tell me that people don't know that there's a God. What they don't realize is that they've sinned against that God. That's our job, church. 
That's our job to sit down and say, you know what? Let me tell you, everybody, you, especially me, because I know me, has sinned against the Almighty God who created all things. And until you believe it in your heart, you won't share it with your neighbor. You won't share it with your wife. You won't share it with your children. You won't share it with that church member sitting next to you. So you've got to understand beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What is God's glory? What does he want from us? He said it very plainly. Be ye holy, for I am holy. We are to be, as God is, holy. Fortunately, he didn't stop with Romans 3.23. He moved over to another verse in Romans in chapter 8. When Paul was writing this, he's working through. That's another one of, uh, in chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 5. In verse 8, he wrote this. But God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for our sins. Just as sure as the Bible says that we have all sinned to come short of the glory of God, it also says that while you were still a sinner and didn't know who God was, you were not chasing him down the road, you were not trying to find him, you may have been sitting in church every Sunday, but you weren't looking for Jesus. You were looking to make sure that you got checked off on your list that you'd been to church because that's how you were raised. That's not chasing after God. Chasing after God is understanding that you're a sinner and that you're looking for relief from that sin. There's not a one of us that was a sinner before the Holy Spirit worked in our heart that one day woke up and said, you know what? i got to get right with Jesus. No, what he says is while you were still a sinner, while you still loved it, while you were still out doing the things of the world and sinning, that God looked down from the portals of heaven and said, I love Roger so much. I love him so much. Even though he's in sin, I'm going to fix it. And how does it say that he fixed it? Christ died for us. There is one way to heaven, and it's the man Jesus Christ. Christ. Because God laid out in the Old Testament this pattern of atonement where you took a spotless lamb, you took a spotless sacrifice, and you sacrificed this spotless thing indicating no sin. And that atoned, in their case, for a year at the Day of Atonement. In our case, we needed a spotless lamb to die upon a cross. I look and there's babies in the nursery and children sitting around. And we tend to look at those children and say, aren't they just perfect and precious? Guess what? They fall under the all also. The day they were born, they're born into sin. How do I know that? How many of you mothers have ever had to teach a child to say the word no? How many have ever had to teach a child that they need to do something bad to experience something bad? That's not what you teach them. You're teaching them when you make a request to say yes. You're teaching them that when an adult says something to them, you say yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. You're teaching them don't put your hand on the stove. It's hot. You're not teaching them to come over and put their hand on the stove when it's hot. Because why? We're all born within us, this nature, to do that thing which is not right. Where did that happen? Hopefully you've read the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. You'll see it back there. But see... He's saying this, while we were still sinners, he found this perfect sacrifice. and It was not a little baby because the baby hasn't sinned. It wasn't a lamb. It was the lamb of God 
It was this man named Jesus. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the Lamb, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, should not go to hell, should not spend eternity in a place called hell, but they should have everlasting life. Write the word heaven right there. And he says, while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us. While we were yet not loving God, God loved us. And he did it as was sung this morning. Through the nails and the hands and the feet, through the crown shoved upon his head, through the blood that poured from his body. He demonstrated his love for us through the death of his only son. I cannot wrap my head around how God the Son was murdered by God the Father. I have no idea how that happens because they're one and the same. But I do know this. God said he did it. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. He did it for that wife of yours, for those children of yours, for your neighbor, for the person sitting in the pew next to you. And unless we're willing to stand up and say, I was once a sinner also, and when I was in that sin, God looked down on me and said, I love him so much, I'm going to save him, I'm going to kill my own son. Unless we tell them, they may never hear. They may never hear. Fortunately, he didn't stop there. He moved on to tell us in Romans 6.23, a verse that I'm sure you all know, that says this, unless you hear this message, there is a problem. For it says, for the wages of sin is death. He makes it very clear that there is no way to skirt it. If you have sinned, there is going to be death. Is he talking about physical death? Absolutely not, because we know we're all going to die unless God comes back one day. We're all headed to a place in the ground. We're going to be put back in the place from which we came. These bodies are going to fail. Each of us could stand up and tell about how our bodies are even failing now. The hurts, the pains, the aches. We know that we are headed towards death physically. What he's saying is this. Unless you fix the problem of sin, unless somebody pays the debt of sin, there is an eternal death in a place called hell. But look what he says next. But the gift of God. Aren't you glad that God is so gracious that he places a gift at your feet? And he says he does it to give us eternal life. And he does it through, it says, Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't miss the fact that there are three words there. Jesus being his name. Christ is not his last name nor his first name. It is who he is. Messiah, Meshua in Hebrew. But it also has the word Lord You see, if Jesus Christ has truly become your Savior, He must also be your Lord. Which means your walk should line up with the work that Christ did in your life. This morning, church, if we want to do anything in this world, we should make our walk be under the Lordship of Christ so that the words we speak to those who are lost are the words that Paul wrote that we're all sinners We all fall short of the glory that there's a God that so loves us that he gave his only begotten son to pay that penalty. And unless we accept that gift of payment, our life is going to be spent in a place called hell. You must not shy away from the destination. You must tell them that there's only one way to heaven and peace and joy and love for all of your life. And it's through Jesus Christ. If you turn your back on Jesus, your destiny is a place called hell with eternal torment. It'll make this world look like a lollipop festival.
Fortunately, he doesn't stop there very quickly. Over in Romans chapter 10. Over in Romans chapter 10, he says this in verse number 9. Actually, let's start in 8. He says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. In parentheses, maybe in your Bible or italics, it may say that is the word of faith which we preach. And he's talking about the words that I have just spoken to you. That we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That there's only one way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. The denial of Jesus Christ in your life sends you to a place called eternity. The words of faith. And he goes on to say this. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. And you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. What does it take to become a Christian? The way I see it, you must believe in your heart. What must you believe? That you're dead in sin and your destiny is a place called hell. And the only way out of the place called hell is a man named Jesus. You must believe in your heart that he died upon a cross for your sins, was nailed to the cross and spilled his blood for you personally. Not for Morris Creek Baptist by attending and being on the roll. Doesn't. His blood didn't fall for the church and your attendance on the roll does not put you under the blood. He died for you personally. You must believe that with your heart. It also says you must confess it with your mouth. If you're not willing to stand up before the brethren and before the world and say, Jesus Christ died for my sins. He's now Lord of my life. Why would you expect Jesus to stand up for you in the last day and say he's one of mine? It says you must not only believe in your heart, you must confess it with your mouth. Church, that means, yes, unto salvation. And I believe it also means after salvation, you must continue to confess with your mouth that Jesus saved you and He is Lord. But look what it goes on to say in verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. That's the faith that comes from the word that's spoken into your heart. From there it says that with the mouth confession is made. Unto salvation. Church, let me ask you this morning. I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to scare you into a place called heaven. I don't want to make you question whether or not you've been saved. But I do want you to stop and think. Have you ever so believed in your heart that you were a sinner and you were headed to hell? That you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ and what he did to stop that process? Have you ever so been convicted about the sin in your life that you realized you needed a Savior? Or your destiny was a place called hell? Have you ever realized that there's an almighty God that loves you, but if you have sin in your life, unconfessed, and not covered by the blood of Jesus, that you will go to hell? Have you ever personally been so convicted by the fact that Jesus is not your Savior that you're willing to believe what the Bible says that Jesus did? Have you ever with your heart, not your head, not your mind, but with your heart, have you ever really believed that while you chose the sin, Jesus chose the nails? 
Have you ever really believed in your heart that while you were still in your sin and enjoying it, that God sent His only begotten Son to die for you? Have you ever believed in your heart that Christ crawled upon a cross, that He looked down from that cross with loving eyes and said, Roger, I'm doing this for you. Have you ever so believed in your heart in what Christ did that you're willing to confess with your mouth that He died for your sins? Are you willing to confess with your mouth that He is Lord? Don't let your church attendance, your good works, your teaching Sunday school, your preaching from a pulpit, don't let those things of pride get in the way of heaven. God can use a mule to spread the gospel. <laughs> We've seen him riding along there on, a, on an old animal and wanting the animal to go in the Old Testament and the animal wouldn't move. And finally, after the animal sat there a while, what did he do? <laughs> Basically, in Roger's theology, he said, go without me because I see what's up there. If he could use an animal to talk to a man, to tell the man what God's got intended, he could use a little sorry preacher like this to tell you the gospel. In this word, I beg you. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this may be your last opportunity. For we don't know what awaits us outside that door. We don't even know if that door will be kicked in and you all be killed for me in here this morning. This morning. Do not leave this place unless you know for sure. That Jesus is your Lord and Savior. How do you do that? You understand that you're a sinner. You don't have to look real deep to know that you're a sinner. You understand there's only one way for that sin to be taken care of, and it's through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You, in faith, say, God, I received that gift of your Son on my behalf to wash me white as snow. And you come. Walk in the aisles, not the secret. The confession of Jesus as your Lord and Savior is, for the Word just said it. You come and you say, I want this Jesus. I accept Him as my Savior and my Lord. Can you do that in a closet somewhere? Yeah, I believe you can. But I, not believe, I do not believe that is the heart of what Paul was saying. For if your Christianity stays in a closet, I have to question whether you're a Christian at all. This morning, would you be willing to give your heart and your life to Jesus? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.